Mark, we're eager to hear what it is that it's on your heart to speak to us about. We're, we're listening. Thanks for being here in this conversation. Thank you, Barry. I'm going to be quiet for just a moment. Uh, this is not because I forgot what I was going to say, but because I'm going to pray on that for just a moment. It's also an opportunity that I use to, to, um, to look at you and connect with you, but you can't, you don't know this, but I do, I can't see you. The light is, there's some light that's blinding me. I don't think it's Jesus. But I want to thank you, Barry, and I want to thank uh, Carl and, and, and the rest of uh, the people who put this together for having me here. It's wonderful to be here to reconnect with uh, old friends, people very much of my heart, and to, and to make new friends. Uh, I want to thank uh, Drew and Christine for the prayers, for the prayers, and, um, and uh, Tara and Kathy for the cough drops, which hopefully are going to work. <clears throat> Uh, I, I also need to make clear that uh, Barry introduced me as a Palestinian Jew. I am a Jew. Um, uh, I can't think of anything else I would ever be. People often ask me, especially after I've preached in the lectionary on church on Sunday morning, have you converted? And my answer to that has come to be, in most cases, you know, I'm not exactly sure what that means, but I wish that things had gone differently in the first century so I wouldn't have to be answering that question. We wouldn't have these categories, we wouldn't have these religions, as, as Tamarat and others have talked about. And I hope that'll be more clear to you, and if, when I'm finished speaking and talking about Jesus, you're even more confused about who is this Jew who's talking about Jesus in this way, um, then perhaps it's not a bad thing. Um, I'm an activist for peace in the Holy Land, for peace between Palestinians and Israelis. I'm not here to talk about politics, I'm here to talk about Jesus. Which means that I'm here to talk about politics. <laughs> you know, Jesus, uh, in most, many of, several of the Gospels, but I'm talking about the one in uh, the, the account in John, comes and stands before the temple with his disciples and says, in three days, not one stone will be left upon another. And his disciples, who of course are straight men, they'd ever get it, they don't understand what he's talking about. They say they've been remodeling this thing and making a bigger and better one for 46 years. What are you talking about, Master? How are you going to rebuild it again in three days? Which is what he said. And then the, the narrator of the Gospels, of that Gospel, so like we're six years old to make sure we get the theology, says he was speaking of the temple of his body. Body of Christ, one common humanity united in a common communion of compassion and love and equality. This temple is not my kingdom, he's saying. It is something completely different. He was making a political statement. He was there on a political mission. What is politics? It's how we organize our lives, how we organize our society, how we speak to our governments. And so I don't make a distinction between religion, whatever that is, and politics. And I see Jesus, whoever else he is and was, is clearly a political figure operating in a political context, a context which bears striking, disturbing, startling similarities to the Palestine of the 21st century, the one in which I have found myself quite often and which turned my life around. Uh, about five years ago, I was sitting in Ramallah, which is the de facto capital of the, of the West Bank, the occupied Palestinian territories, with a woman named Lana Abu Hijla, a woman from an old Muslim family in Nablus, in the West Bank. 
And she was telling me, and she is the country director of Mercy Corps in Palestinian territories, and she was telling me a story. First she told me about her story as a Palestinian. Her mother was killed by the Israeli army when it invaded Nablus. She didn't tell me this for shock value, to blame Israel, uh, for sympathy, simply this is our life. We're Palestinians, this happens to us. But the story she wanted me to repeat, which, she, which I often do, is that she commutes from Jerusalem, from a northern suburb of Jerusalem, which is still part of what presumably someday will become Palestine, but which is about being carved out by a wall uh, to become part of greater Jewish Jerusalem. And if many of you have ever seen that wall, you've seen pictures of it, it's a big, this 30-foot high wall. And she takes a trip from Jerusalem to Ramallah every day, and often her eight-year-old daughter is with her. And one day her daughter, you know how eight-year-olds are, they'll come out with the craziest, just the most wonderful things out of nowhere. The wall is along that entire road, it's about five miles at that point uh, on that road from Jerusalem to Ramallah. She looks at her mother and says, Mommy, why do they make the Jews live behind that wall? Now this is an important story. This little girl doesn't know that she's supposed to be the prisoner of that wall, that that wall is there to take her land and to keep her out. She sees the truth. The Palestinians are oppressed. They have been wronged. But they're not the prisoners of that wall. My people, the Jewish people, the ones with their foot on the throat of the Palestinians, they are the prisoners of that wall. And they are spiritually in great peril because they do not know their brothers and sisters, the Palestinian people. That wall is a psychological, a spiritual barrier. And it is dangerous and it is wrong for that reason. That wall will come down someday, just like the Berlin Wall comes down, just like all walls come down. But the wall in our hearts, that's what we need to talk about. When I stood before that wall for the first time, not that many years ago, it's a horrible, ugly thing, but something turned on, turned over inside me. It was particularly disturbing because I knew that wall, it lived in my heart. I was raised with that wall in my heart. Now, being Jewish is a wonderful thing. I love my tradition. I can open up the Bible and read the Psalms in Hebrew. I am proud to be a Jew. I love my Jewishness, I love my Judaism, but there is a dark side, and the dark side is the legacy of 2,000 years of suffering, which we still carry with us, and when I grew up, I was taught that I had two enemies. People that I had to fear, that I had to keep myself apart from, not to trust. One was the German people because of what they had done to us. And the other was the Arabs, as we called them, because of what they would do to us if we didn't have the state of Israel. And in fact, you know, actually most of the rest of the world were dangerous and sort of my enemies. That would be all of you guys. The nations, the Goyim, as we called them. I mean. I had to keep my distance. You were either going to kill me or convert me. It wasn't exactly clear to me which was the worst thing that could happen of those two. Yeah. But I grew up with that. And something inside me always knew that that was not the identity that I wanted to build for myself. And by the grace of God, of in all places, Palestine, I crossed over. And that wall came down. And Jesus was waiting for me in Jerusalem at the offices of Sabil, which was founded by a Palestinian Anglican priest, and he works with his people to non-violently resist the occupation and the oppression that they live under. And I sat with them 
and he spoke with a woman named Nora, who's a Palestinian Christian, who is, uh, who had a home in the neighborhood where my family now lives, and she can't go back there. And I asked her, Nora, how do you cope? How do you deal with being um, a dispossessed Palestinian? Your kids are leaving because there's no future for them in the country as, Palest as, as Palestinians. And she said, it's very simple. We follow Jesus. Who was he? He was a Palestinian Jew who lived under Roman occupation. What did he teach his people? That you must resist, that you must resist what Rome is doing to you, and you must resist nonviolently by staying with your Torah, with the teachings of our faith, of our tradition, that say, you know, what do they say? Jubilee, equality. Nobody gets more than anybody else. We share, we live in our communities. That's how we resist oppression. That's how we resist empire. We follow Jesus, she said. Empires come and empires go. We follow Jesus. We are here. And that blew me away. And I realized, <coughs> I realized that what I had been feeling that was tearing me apart, which is that I didn't want to be in West Jerusalem with my family, with my people, where I spoke Hebrew, where I spoke the language. I wanted to be on the east side of the city with the Arabs, with Christians, with Muslims. I didn't speak their language. What's happening to me? Am I supposed to convert? Am I supposed to become an Arab, a Christian, a Muslim? What's happening? And I realized that the sense of connection I was feeling with the Palestinian people, and that sense of, frankly, anger I was feeling toward my own people was the most Jewish thing that I had ever felt. It is what I had been taught that this Jesus was in a direct line from the prophets that I had been brought up on, who taught me just that. You stand up for those who are oppressed. Matthew chapter 25, right? And that working for the liberation of Palestine, and even, maybe even more important, for the liberation of my own people from being the oppressors, was the most important thing that I could do. And that changed my life. And for the first time, you know, I. Last night, uh, Jay talked about the Jewish book and the Christian book, right? I was not I was supposed to open the Christian book. That guy, Jesus, I wasn't supposed to learn about him. All of a sudden, I learn about him. And I realize that he's my heart. I came home. For the most part, it's starting to change now, very slowly. It's starting to change, but for the most part, the synagogues, my own people, were not open to my message. I wanted to say, look, we are in trouble. This liberation, this redemption, we cannot build it on the ruins of another civilization. We cannot do this by dispossessing the Palestinians. It won't work. It's not the answer to anti-Semitism to build an ethnic nationalist nation state. We need to find another way, and we need to live with these people. They're wonderful. The doors of the synagogues did not exactly fling open in welcome to this message. That's a problem, that hurts, that's a tragedy, but that's for us to deal with. The miracle that happened was that the doors of the churches flung open. The churches that I was in, like this one, that know what it means to be a church, said, tell us more about what's happening to the Palestinians. We know what to do. We've read the book of Matthew. We know what the Great Commission is. Tell us more. And by the way, tell us, because you're a Jew and you can say things about Israel that most Christians still feel they can't say. And I say, okay, fine. I will do that. I will accept the assignment. But I will tell you that I pray for the day that you don't need a Jew's permission to be a faithful Christian about this. And that's what I've been doing. After one of these talks, 
a pa the pastor came up to me, this was a Presbyterian church, and he said, listen, I really agree with you, I know you're right, but I think we have to be careful about how we talk about this because we have to be careful of the sensitivities of Jews. I said, what do you mean? He said, look, I am a pastor, I'm a Presbyterian pastor, I've studied Christian history, I feel personally responsible for the Holocaust. That was Christian, Western Christian European anti-Semitism. When I'm with rabbis and Jews and, we, and, and I do a lot of interfaith work, we don't talk about Israel, it's off the table. And that was my road to Damascus moment because I looked at him and I said, I never met this guy. I said, Pastor, I appreciate your feelings of sensitivity toward my people, but uh, this is not being a friend to Israel. My people are in trouble. We need to talk about it. And if you enable that, and I use that word on purpose, if you enable that behavior by keeping it off the table and giving us a pass, you're not being our friend, and the rabbis who won't talk about it with you are not being a friend to Israel either. And he sort of looked at me, and I, but I wasn't finished. I said, this is not what Jesus would want you to do. So here's this Jewish psychologist lecturing this Presbyterian pastor about what Jesus wants him to do. I realized at that moment that that was the voice that some power had given me. We don't have time to go into the theology here, but what I learned about was that that pastor, like many Christian clergy and Christians in general, had learned that because of the Nazi Holocaust, because of what the church had done to the Jewish people, Christianity, frankly, had done to the Jewish people, threw us under the bus from the beginning, it's very clear, nobody argues about that, that today, you can't say anything that would imply anything that would subject you to the charge of being anti-Semitic. And that uh, the idea, even that Christianity had something else to say or something more to say about God, that, Christ, that Judaism had not said at that point was also a terrible thing because that leads to anti-supersessionism, replacement theology, the Holocaust, Hitler, the whole thing. And I started to learn about that. And what does Christianity say that, that, that was not in the Old Testament? It's Jesus in front of the temple saying, this comes down. We don't build temples. God doesn't live on a mountain. The woman at the well, right? He said, at one point, you know, woman, we will not worship on one mountain or another mountain. That's what I'm here to tell you about. And Pentecost, when the disciples said, will you bring, are you, the Holy Spirit's coming, great, you're going to bring the kingdom back to Israel? Jesus said, wait and see. And what happens? They learn to speak all the languages of the world. And he says, get the heck out of Jerusalem, go through Judea and Samaria, out into the world. The temple is over. The land, as a sacrament and as holy, is over. The earth is the Lord's, and everyone is a child of God. That's why I'm so sorry that things went differently in the first century. Because my people now have to understand that. We are deep in sin. I take responsibility for that. We embrace the myth that violence redeems, that we own that land. There are some Christians who believe that the fact that we now have Jerusalem, that the Jews have Jerusalem, means Jesus is coming tomorrow. Heresy! I know what Jesus would say to that if he came back to the Holy Land today. He'd stand in front of the Knesset and say, this temple's got to go. We need my kingdom now. This is not what I meant. So, listen, if you want to love my, this is not about loving my people. If you want to love my people, love us the way you love your alcoholic or drug-addicted family member who's asking for another bottle and the keys to the car. 
the reality now is that our government and the church institutions, along with the synagogues, are supporting our government, supporting Israel, continuing to build a system which is illegal and which is wrong and which is taking Israel, never mind the Palestinians, they'll get their liberation, taking the Jewish citizens of Israel who thought they were building a wonderful democratic society, taking them over a suicidal cliff. Now we need to think about what the church did for South Africa, and we need to think about what the church did for America during the civil rights movement. The churches were the game changers in both cases. They were deeply religious, Christian, spiritual movements at the heart of what Jesus was about. Read the letter from the Birmingham jail. Read the Kairos document that the, that the South African uh, church wrote in 1985, calling for the government to come down because they were not with Jesus as long as they were reporting, uh, supporting apartheid. And there is now an, an international movement called Kairos. There's a document, you can get it at the, uh, at the bookstore, that talks about the Palestinian Christian call. And the churches are called. The churches are called. And we Jews will walk with you, but do not wait for institutional Judaism to come along. This is a human rights issue. And this is an issue of, uh, concerning deep, deep faith in what Jesus requires all of us to do, not just for the Palestinians, but for the future of the world. I'll just end with this one quick story. I was in a church one night giving this talk, and you know, this is a Catholic church actually, and church people like to know where you worship. They're like, where do you worship? Where do you worship? Where do you worship? Right? So this one woman, very curious about me, said, well, where, what's your synagogue? And I was caught off guard because I don't belong to one right now. <clears throat> but uh, the answer was right there when, you know, is, which is often the case when you don't have a ready answer. I said, this is it. You're standing. You're sitting in my synagogue. This work that I'm doing for the liberation of the Palestinians and the Israelis from apartheid in our day, this work is my synagogue. This is my worship. And, of course, we're in a Catholic church, so suspended above the altar. Big, a big one. Crucifix. And there is Jesus hanging on the cross. And I said, this is my synagogue. And I know that the Palestinian rabbi whose image is suspended over my right shoulder, who began his ministry in a synagogue in Nazareth on one Sabbath, would fully endorse that statement. So welcome to our synagogue. Thank you.